Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we're talking about the current state of the labor market. Right now, certainly we have a lot of employers who are desperate for people. You may be getting an approach from people who want to hire you, but don't just be flattered into saying, I'm going to take a job. I'm going to move somewhere else just for maybe a little bit more money now. you got to think about how does this job fit into your long-term career. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. And you know, this is the show that tries to help you educate yourself a little bit as well as entertain you and also give you insights about how to better manage your money. And today we're really lucky because we have a Wall Street Journal reporter, Chip Cutter, who's going to help us make sense of the current labor market. Now, you know, we just got this February jobs report out. There was good news. We saw that wages are up. There was some bad news, just 20,000 jobs created. So what's really underneath this jobs report? What are the themes and trends that are going on in the labor market that help explain why in one part of the country, people feel good about the economy and in another part of the country, not so good? To help you better understand where the labor market is right now, here's our interview with Chip Cutter. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Chip Cutter, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Jill, so good to be here. Um, I'll give everyone the background on Chip in a second, but suffice to say that we're friends first. We met because he used to work at LinkedIn. Now you are at the Wall Street Journal and you are here because you are covering just the coolest beat, which is essentially employment. Like yeah. it's like the jobs market. And um, but from the view of like how we work, essentially, and not from I want to drill down into all Labor Department releases. Right. Work touches everybody. It's a great beat because we all we all have jobs. We're all thinking about work all the time. So we usually start the podcast before we get into your great content with a very big question. You ready? Mm. Best career or financial decision that you've ever made? I think for me, it's it's just following, best career decision was just following jobs where you feel, feel like you're going to keep learning and growing. You can find jobs that will pay you a lot and will give you lots of opportunity, but I think finding those jobs where you feel like you're going to be around the people who will take you to the next level, help you get the next job and the next job after that, I feel like that's so critical. Did you always know you wanted to be a journalist? Always. I mean, it was from a little kid where you'd see a fire truck down the street and be like, what's going on there? I want to know the story behind you mean, what that you is. Did, so you wanted to know the story. You didn't want to be the fireman. No, no. I was just like, <laughs> what is this? I want to be the, I want to be the kid that's hanging around like, talking to them like, well, wait, what's going on inside that house? So what was your first job? You went to college to study journalism? Yeah. So first journalism job was working at some high school or some uh, community newspaper in Cincinnati where it was a weekly, you'd go out and just talk to, you'd like cover parades and that kind of stuff. My first actual paying job was working at a water park in Cincinnati, Ohio at a food service stand. It was, oh my God, that sounds like the worst job it, ever. It was the worst job. There were racco- raccoons that lived in the ceiling. So you'd come in and it was, anyway, that's a whole other story. When but, you say raccoons living in the ceiling, it almost feels like that could be here. Mark, we might have raccoons. <laughs> Raccoons in the ceiling here. There could be, Mark thinks rats, but ra- raccoon would probably be a, a, an upgrade. So then, what was your first journalism job? You went to college. What happened yeah. next? Then I got got hired at the Associated Press, and so I was covering business here in New York for the AP. And the AP is such a wonderful place that you know the world's largest news organization. So covered all sorts of different stories. Took that job at LinkedIn then, which was a great opportunity to kind of add news and commentary on top of LinkedIn's huge existing audience. And when then, did you join LinkedIn? So that was 2011. Was that pre or post IPO? Post IPO, but Duh. but at the time, well, but at the time they still had. I mean, it was still 
fairly small. The, I think a lot of people were still kind of questioning, what do we do on LinkedIn? We have these profiles. What do we do with it? And so our idea was to try to add news and, and commentary, have great people like you explaining, here's what the world looks like from our perspective. And so that turned out to be really powerful, and it was just a great great place to work, great people that are there. They still miss you. You know, they talk about them. you still. They're great. They do. Yeah. So then you started a job at The Journal. And why Why did you want to make that leap? Because obviously, staying at LinkedIn would be way cushier and you'd make more money. Duh. Well, like, that's obvious. But it, but it, So for me, it was like The Journal is such a place. It's a place that I've admired for so long. And they just do great work. And it's wonderful to work with these editors who have been around for decades, who are total pros, and just really care about giving readers the best information uh, to make them better at what they do. Tell me how, like, what what's a day in Chip's life look like? What happens for you when you walk into work? And a lot of people talk about journalism. It means different things. So for some people who are listening, we have a lot of younger people who are listening to this podcast, and they're saying, you know, I want to be in journalism, but I don't want to have to write 18 blog posts a day with clickbait headlines. Right. What What is your life like? Yeah, thankfully, like, it's a real luxury. We don't have to do that. I mean, this so a lot of it is you come in, you, you're doing a lot of time reading and talking to people. You're trying to make sure that you understand what's going on. So a big part of it is trying to develop sources all over the place um, who will tell you interesting things about what's happening that can help kind of guide where you might go with stories. And so I'm just calling people up, talking to people I talk to all the time, and trying to kind of just see what's what we should be thinking about. Would you tell a story of a specific company, industry, or trends generally? What's the what's the mantra? All of that. I mean, so for you know, example, I wrote a piece about a week ago on a growing number of companies that are installing gunshot detectors in the workplace. Nobody had really written about this, that these have been rolled out so broadly, because you would never know that these things were there, and they look like little smoke detectors almost. But companies are so afraid of the threat of an active shooter in the workplace that they've installed these sensors, which are really battlefield technology. That's an example of a story that we're trying to kind of show what's happening in our workplaces that you might not be thinking about. Okay, so when you do a big enterprise piece like this, and it was called How America Works, how does that start? Who 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 says let's do this? Is this you know? I I know that this was sort of the the big lead article was by a guy named Eric Morath and Lauren Weber, both of whom were very busy. They couldn't join us today. How does this happen? This was an example. I mean, Eric and Lauren are great, and that whole team is wonderful. And so. Basically, they, this, they noticed that there's been 100 consecutive months of job growth. And this is really, really remarkable to think where we are in the job market right now. They had this idea of, what let's tell the story of what's happening in the job market right now. Who's winning? Who's losing? Where might it go from here? And so we tried to do that in a bunch of different stories in a bunch of fun ways. The one thing that I found quite interesting, and I'd heard this, that they say that there are still fault lines that rural areas of the United States are still lagging behind in a big way. But these big urban areas are the ones that are generating so much of the growth. So why do you think that is? Absolutely. That was, I mean, I think partly because you get this kind of clustering effect that happens, right? Where people with education and skills, they all kind of want to live in certain places. Employers then gravitate there. But then you have this split where people in rural areas say they just don't have the opportunities. I spoke with someone who just graduated in December with a degree in in business administration and, and liberal arts. And he says he's applied for dozens and dozens of jobs. His only option is basically to move an hour away or an hour and a half away. He lives in rural Indiana. So he can either move to Indianapolis or move to Cincinnati, but his family is in this small town. He doesn't want to leave them. And so it's it's kind of creating hard choices for people like that who say that the economy is just, you know, the jobs just aren't where I am. Hmm. And so I'm going to have to move. And some people aren't willing to do that. Is this going back to the fact that the industries that used to 
be part of those rural areas, whether it be coal mining or different aspects of manufacturing, have changed so dramatically? It really is. You think about places like West Virginia that are still so dependent on coal, for example, that don't have the skilled labor force. They don't have, they haven't had kind of these thriving metropolises that would help. Their unemployment rate, statewide unemployment rate in West Virginia is still above 5%, um, whereas nationally it's far lower. And so I think, you know, these are the places that are kind of being left behind in all of this, even though you talk about other markets like Austin and San Jose that are some of the hottest in the country uh, and just keep attracting more and more of these workers. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about one one article that you wrote as part of this package. More Americans are back at work making stuff. Do you write the headlines? Uh, so we sometimes suggest headlines, uh, but then this was actually an editor who wrote this headline. So We hear so much, whether it's the president or politicians, they talk about how the manufacturing industry has been gutted out. My understanding is that while the industry is still pretty buoyant, it's just that it employs fewer people. So is that because of technology primarily or is that because of offshoring? Offshoring is a big part of this, but technology has really made a lot of the advances. So, and I talked to a bunch of people, for example, where he said he used to have nine people that would help bail this stuff up and put it in a pallet, for example. This was a copper wiring manufacturer uh, in Ohio. And now they can just do that by machines. And there's a lot of examples like that. You just don't need as many people. So if you look at kind of the stats of where we went with this, I mean, so... 1979, there are close to 20 million people who work in manufacturing. We hit a low in manufacturing jobs in 2010. We get down to 11.5 million manufacturing jobs. Mm -hmm. But then since then, we've really started to recover. And and this is what's remarkable, because in the last last real boom from 2001 to 2007, we were adding millions of jobs, but manufacturing lost about 2 million jobs in that period. And Mm. so we're adding jobs again in, in manufacturing, which I think is really interesting. Why? And it's partly because there's demand again for these products, and companies realize they've, they're able to make manufacture here competitively. Automation has helped with this. Technology has helped with this. Are the robots coming to get our jobs? And if so, who has to watch out for that? I do think there is there's concern about that. We But we've seen, if you look at the past, I mean, automation has generally resulted in more jobs being created overall. I mean, jobs might be displaced, but it tends to create more jobs. But still, I think uh, you look at places like I talked to a bunch of people in Oklahoma, and the fear in some of these places is that there are so few workers to work these manufacturing jobs. I talked to somebody who said, we're just going to have to, he's partnering with a local technical college. We're just going to try to automate some of this work because we can't, um, we can't find workers to do it. So that's the fear here is that you almost, mm. you have so few people who can do some of these skilled jobs, for example, being a machine operator. Operator or knowing how to operate some of this equipment or having kind of these, you know, knowing how to, to weld things, whatever it might be, that, that some of this work gets automated. And so I think that's the concern. And when you think about other parts of the economy, I mean, I hear about automation, AI, machine learning, essentially getting rid of those jobs that are repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't, I mean, not repetitive in the way that you think, oh, it must be repetitive to have to be a garbage man, because actually a garbage man or a garbage woman is something like you need a human being for. You need a, it's different. Every every house is a little bit different. That's actually probably a very tough job to automate. Right? Yeah. But, but it has to be something. So where do you think in studying this, you know, these trends, where do you think the, not just in manufacturing, what other industries are looking at automation to replace people? Because those would probably be careers we'd want to avoid. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you talk about that, you know, economists and others would call these like middle skilled jobs. For example, it could be anyone from, you know, analysts to accountants to others, where some of these roles certainly you will still need people in them, but there's 
for kind of more of the rote day-to-day tasks that might be able to be handled by automation. And so I think that's where people think this could go next, uh, some of these more kind of white-collar jobs in, in some places and that still pay a good a good wage. And so I think that's the concern. Do you think that personal assistance, I, I tend to think that needs a human touch because that's like, well, I know my boss and I know what my boss would want to do after lunch or before. I don't right. know. What do you think about that? We have seen a decline in, in like jobs for receptionists, for example. But, but I think there is, I think you're right, some of those jobs will require that high touch. But legal, we've seen automation and technology rolled out in the legal field. There's a bunch of startups that are just focused on doing this. Things like document discovery and other areas, just work that requires a lot of lawyers that, that say that technology could do this so much faster and easier. What do you think about in medicine? What about the idea that machines can read x-rays or be better diagnosticians than humans? I know. Well, that's, I mean, this is, there's a bunch of, of software that, that can show, you know, we can, we've spotted the cancer diagnosis, for example, before, before others, a bunch of players are trying to get there. I don't know, though. If you're a patient, don't you want a human still in the room for that? I mean, Maybe I think- not, but because when now I'm starting to think that humans make so many mistakes, don't you read those long articles yes, in the New Yorker and you think, oh my God, they did this? Right. Really? So I <laughs> These think- These medical that- mysteries- you're like, yeah. how did it end up like this? Exactly. So I think that human error is a part of that that makes me feel a little bit better. All right. So how about income gains and where they're distributed? Are we doing better? Is it, do you feel like there is, I know that we've had some wage gains in the last year, but are we back to where we were two decades ago or not? That's the, I mean, the way this is distributed, we still have seen, uh, you know, really on the high end, you think of people like software engineers and others who have, you know, high skilled jobs that are able to take a big share of these wage gains. But we have started to see it a little bit more distributed than it has been in the past. Uh, for example, I mean, we've seen nationally, there's been about, a, I think, like about a 5%, you know, close to that uh, increase in, in wages uh, over, over the past couple of years in some of these fields. And so I think, for example, you look at people like in kind of low-skilled work, for example, like personal care aides. That's the hottest job that the Labor Department has said over the past, over the next decade. I know, but you know, here's my idea about those people. Those people need to unionize and fast because Hmm. I pay more for my dog walker than the cost of my home health aid through a service for my mother-in-law. And so to me, I don't understand. Like that should be a very high-paying job. So a lot of these, and and the market for personal care is just so distributed, right? There's because there are a bunch of these agencies. It's nice they're making eleven, twelve dollars an hour, and it's just tough to tough to make a living on that in some of these uh, in some of these areas. And so think about that kind of work is the one that that is supposed to be growing the most over the next decade. And we have seen some wage gains there, and we've seen it in other areas too. And we talked to a bunch of people in these stories of people who have seen just huge increases in their um, in their kind of take-home pay and. I think that's been that's been helpful for a lot of people. What other trends do you think are important for people? Like we are going to come into graduation season very shortly. What are other trends that we need to know about as people come in? I mean, we know that there is a, a need for a college degree to compete, even though that college degree may not be absolutely useful to you in whatever career you're choosing. Mm. So, still, there's still obviously a big advantage to having a college degree. But not yeah. going into debt up your eyeballs right. to get it. exactly. So what is it that we should be telling our kids to do right now? You look at where the job growth has been. It has been in a lot of these high tech fields. So whether it's whether it's a software developer, a cybersecurity engineer, mm-hmm. someone who is is focused on user experience design, or I mean, yes, there are a bunch of jobs there. I talked to somebody the other day, a CEO at a big company, who was saying, you know, maybe there's still. He's like, I, I still am advocating for philosophy degrees. We need people who can solve problems and just know how to do that. So don't just put all your money and think all your kind of bets on tech and think that's the only way to go because there are there's a need for people who can do 
this and think about the world in these ways. Uh, you don't just need to have an engineering degree to do it. First of all, I also want to say that everyone should go to WSJ.com and check this out. We'll put a link to this. Whose idea was that calculator? Because it's insane. I went right down that rabbit hole. There's a calculator that basically says, how do you stack up? It is like the worst behavior that you could ever engage in. So addictive. It, yes. And you could do it by yourself. Exactly. You okay. just put where you are, where you know what you're making, what you're doing, what your education is, and then it shows you, are you winning? Are you up? Are you up or down compared to others in your market? It's fascinating. This was one of my colleagues who developed it, and it's it's just... Uh, so like, how do you do that? Who develops that tool? You have a team of tech people who do that? There's a team of folks who focus on, for example, data visualizations and interactives. It's so cool. They do great work. And so this is, this is that team who just pours through the numbers, tries to find an easy way to present it to readers and uh and so this is something where i was i was putting it for all my family members i was asking i mean how's everyone doing okay i was yeah my sister is a teacher in columbus ohio Uh, uh school teacher she was doing a little bit worse than others but other other in her in her area but i think overall i mean it was it was just fun to kind of see my friends and family do it you know, when I looked at it, I thought it's it's funny because it totally depends because the, the buckets are very big. So I think I went in under, I don't even, it didn't go into broadcast, but I think it's put in journalist. Yeah. So obviously it's different to be a network journalist versus someone who is grinding out those blog posts at, exactly. you know, blankityblank.com. Yes. How does the Labor Department deal with that kind of data? Do they, I know they break it out into different categories, but some, it's, it's hard because it's everyone in the, is in the pool together, right. right? That's the hard part. There are certainly regional differences and they try to do, I mean, the Labor Department does a great job of crunching this, but there are still, of course, it's hard to get, they're not going to get into those kind of nuances to say you work at a network in New York City versus someone who's, I mean, you could say you're a journalist in New York, what are journalists making? And they can lump that all together, but it's just, you're not going to have that kind of granularity. And so and- that's, yes, that's a flaw. Do you have some thesis about the gender wage gap and how to correct it? Well, I, I think you're right. Transparency, I think, is one way to solve this. Of knowing what, knowing what you and your colleagues are are making, having an idea of what this job in your band at your level, what that pays. I mean, we talk to heads of human resources departments all the time, and that's all they want to talk about is how they're helping to level out these pay bands and making sure that they're looking for that. But obviously, there's a lot of other differences that come into it. Whether women are still given the same opportunities, whether they're able to be promoted into these different bands. And so it's not just about just the pay itself, but also the opportunities, the, the you know availability of mentoring, all these other things that we talk about all the time that are so important to long-term career development. Mark and I have a friend who found out that she was being paid less than a male colleague who came in at a lower title. Mm. How did she solve that? We had to have like a, a huddle. We had to say, what are you going to do with that information? Because yeah. we don't share information as much. Right. And I think yeah. that, that what has happened is that the younger generation feels much more comfortable sharing that information, being transparent. We've had people on the show who say, like, just talk to your friends about their salaries right. so they know. So the idea was, how do you not put your boss on the spot? Because there's also all that crazy research that says, like, when women ask for more money, they're viewed, like, in a harsher light than when a man asks for more money. So you're kind of – you want to correct the inequality, but you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face and then, like, basically get a a bad rap for however long you're with a company. Right. So I think that what more people have to do is kind of talk to their bosses in a way that doesn't, like, say, I heard that Joe makes more money than I. Yeah. You know, I think it's maybe understanding that – you know, maybe Joe was hired with a specific expertise that I don't have, and I learned about this inequality, and I'm wondering how can I bring myself up to that level? That's it. And because bosses immediately in that kind of conversation are going to get defensive and get freaked out, and they don't want to say the wrong thing, and they don't, they, they're obviously concerned. And so I think 
being able to kind of approach these conversations in that way, understanding wh- how the pay is set, I think is a really important thing. Some people, though, can also just go, like some HR departments are saying, just come to us if you want to know where you sit in this band, for example. And I mm-hmm. think that can be a way, if it's awkward going to your boss, just wanting to know where are you in in, uh, in this range for the role that you do. And I think that can, that can be maybe a little bit easier. What kind of data do you think the um, employer should be using? Should they be testing at each of these bands? Should they? Because mm. I feel like it's also a bit of a liability if that happens happens because, you know, you don't want to be caught surprised either. And when they right. do all, I think what was fascinating, who just did the survey where they found out that the men were not paid as well as the women? This was Google, right? It was crazy, I mean, they, right? They raised a bunch of male wages because they felt like they were paid They were paid less. I mean, they showed that they were paid less. And that obviously caused a huge, you know, uh, range of responses. Do you think that companies need to be doing that? Just like, like, I have a friend who worked at Verizon and she all of a sudden got a wage increase and she's like, I'm sure that this came about because someone went around and said like, oh my God, there's a certain number of women who are over in this band who are screwed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that I don't. I think pay transparency is something that everybody cares about. Like pay fairness and wanting to wanting to not feel that you're doing the same job and you're paid far less than the person sitting next to you. I think we all can relate to that. And so I think it's really on companies to think about how do we how do we solve this in a smart way. And, and you run into a lot of interesting issues while you're doing it. It's oftentimes not as easy as companies think it might be as you're trying to go about this because there are differences in experience and, and uh, everything else too. But I think companies are trying to kind of solve this in interesting ways. I just talked with the um, the head of HR at a company called HubSpot. They're based in they're based in Boston. And so they when they're doing when they're kind of raising promotions for employees and raises, they they actually have something managers can see how much have you given to men, how much have you given to women. And so just something that's mm-hmm. simple inside of an Excel spreadsheet is a way to tell managers it's it's fine if you're raising r- wages more for one group over the other if it's you know, reason for it and there's justification, but just knowing that, just be, kind of being aware of some of these issues are are oftentimes some smart way to solve it. You wrote this article that I love, which is how to make the booming job market work for you. Mm. So let's start. How shall we? Well, so number one is to don't be flattered into another job because you, right now, certainly we have a lot of employers who are desperate for people. You may be getting an approach from people who want to hire you, but don't just be flattered into saying, I'm going to take a job. I'm going to move somewhere else just for maybe a little bit more money now. You've got to think about how does this job fit into your long-term career. If you have an offer, how much more does that offer have to be for you to go back to your boss and be like, hey, like Mark comes in and says, oh, by the way, this other podcast host is uh, throwing numbers out here. <laughs> and uh, so how much more? I mean, I guess it depends think? on each person. But I, I, I mean, what would you what would you say? 15 percent, 20 percent? I, mean, I was that, thinking yeah. that. So I was thinking yeah. like if you had if you had somebody who was making, say, a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And they get headhunted or they get solicited or they have a friend who says, hey, you know, come. And it's like one hundred five thousand dollars. Yeah. Okay. But maybe they go out and they take that interview and it's not 105. At the end of that interview, the person says, you'd be at the top end of our band because maybe you're in sales and you could bring this account over. You have a different skill set or I really like you. And now it's 125. I think that once you're in that range where you're talking about a 25% bump, then you think about, do I go back to my boss and talk about this? And also, I think you're right. I think that a lot of people are lured by money, but they forget about a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And the other stuff maybe, as you started this, you talked about career advancement. Like, I see a path. I, ex- you know, maybe money is not the most important thing for you once you get the money you need to live your life. Yeah. Someone did come to Mark and ask him about a job, and it was a job that was going to require that he walk into the building five days a week. Mm. If you look at this guy, this guy coming anywhere five days a week anymore, forget about it. 
So I think that there is flexibility, which feels really good, and autonomy feels really good. You cannot actually put a price on that. Maybe a little price you can. I don't know. A little price. But I so I talked to the author Dan Pink, and he said that exact thing. He's like, look at where your job is. How much autonomy does it, does it give you? How much kind of control of your day-to-day job you have? And what is your kind of intellectual stimulation as part of it? So think about if you have a job that's just you're just kind of doing this, the work over and over again every day. It's not interesting to you. You have little flexibility, little kind of control of your schedule. That is a recipe for burnout. But if you have a job that you really are into, it provides a lot of kind of you, you feel like there are more opportunities. The job changes. It's interesting. That's a whole other. So just kind of looking at money alone isn't going to be able to solve that. You need to kind of look at this whole equation. How do you think the focus on generations has been in the workplace? Do you think it's overdone? I think it's overdone. I'm personally not that interested in some of these just like big sweeping kind of trends on on millennials or, or like this in the workplace or whatever it might be. I think those are really boring and a lot of they've been overdone, right? I mean, and I, you are a millennial. I'm a millennial, and but we're, we're all like, different. I'll admit it. I'll I'm admit a millennial. It. <laughs> He's like gives shrugs his shoulder. I'm encouraged by the millennials. I say this over and over on the program because I think that contrary to this, oh, you know, they're entitled to this. First of all, I'm not their parents, so it's very easy for me to say this. But I think that they have their heads on straighter about their own financial lives. Mm. And I think that they – you're an older millennial, but like I think the younger ones have been incredibly unlucky just timing-wise. That Dan Pink when, you know, like when you graduate in a recession, it ain't great for your career. Timing matters so much and it can affect you over your whole life. And so I think that the other piece of it is that they may be smarter about figuring out the happiness part of the career. Yeah. When you wrote how to make the booming job market work for you, what did you learn about your own career? I mean, I loved kind of some of the advice in there of, of about having your own company kind of re-recruit you. This idea of, of just saying, putting your hand up and saying, you know this is a hot job market right now. You know your employers are looking to fill all these different roles. So putting yourself and saying, here's the time to speak up about what you might want to that position you've coveted or that assignment you've coveted. I think employers now, they don't want to lose people. It's really it's really difficult to hire right now. So play that to your advantage. I think that was, that was advice that I thought was interesting. And then I just thought talking to the head of HR at Adobe, for example, asking, you know, how would you get a raise right now? And she was saying, even in this job market, where we talk about all these stats, how hot it is, she's like, we're still not going to give you just $10,000 out of the blue. You've got to really, you still got to perform. And you still need to be able to make the case that I want I want the top raise in the next review cycle based on what I've done and based on my performance. So that still matters right now. When you think about the employment landscape now, do you feel like it is important for people to really map out every piece? Because you say create a career map, Okay. And there's a part of me that's like, yes, you should. And the other part of me is that, look, I didn't have any map. I, I mean, it, it was insane. I didn't. I could never have crafted what has happened in my life. So how important is that career map? I feel the same way. There's no way I would have said, okay, I'm going to go from this, this to this. I mean, it just it's, it, careers are strange and they're long and they take a lot of different unexpected turns. And so I think what the advice with these career maps and some of these other things are is just to think how this, how might this next position fit into what you would like to do or what? I mean, I think it's a, more of an exercise in trying to think deeply about what this next role might give you and where it might fit into one broad picture. Of course, that might change. That map is going to be different in a couple of years, perhaps. But just I think think 
thinking about it. There's there's one person I talked to. She's a software engineer who has had five jobs in five years. Oh, and God. She, she lives in Seattle. She's super talented, has worked at everywhere from Amazon to PayPal. And and so she, but she said she writes out these elaborate uh, spreadsheets, these pros and cons lists. In one case, she sent her pros and cons list to her existing employer and was like, here's what I'm going to get in this other job. You know, And that ended up spurring a conversation with the employer. So that is an approach that worked well for her. It may not work well for everybody. So I think that's the important kind of caveat in all of this is that careers are so different. They're so kind of individual. And so knowing how to navigate them, I think you just have to think think about what you might want to do. Think about how this next role might fit into it. But then obviously keep an open mind. These, these careers are going to go in unexpected places. How do you deal with somebody who feels stuck? Like, I got a good job, but I got a bunch of college debt. And I, I'm kind of scared to leave. What, what's yeah. your advice to those folks? Certainly, if you have a bunch of college debt and you just can't, you don't have any other option, okay, like perhaps you need to stay in those jobs that, that pay you, that just can pay you enough to, to get by. But I don't know. I mean, I think fear as a, as a, as a way to make decisions is never, is never a great way to go about things, right? I mean, mm. so I think, but again, I think it's thinking about where, where you could have that long-term career growth. And where, when, you're doing, when you're on a path to where maybe even if this job isn't perfect for you, but you feel like it's going to help you take you to somewhere else that might be more fulfilling, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. What's the deal with ageism at work? Still there or is not there because it's a tight labor market? You would think it would not be there in a tight labor market. It still, it still is an issue that we hear about all the time. Really? We probably get more reader emails on age discrimination than anything else. That's probably because you have an old farty readership. I would even <laughs> see it at LinkedIn. I mean, this is like people want you to talk about this because people are still finding it difficult. They're having to piece together multiple part-time jobs because they can't just get that one full-time job that's going to pay them enough. And so that is still, those are still kind of uh, factors that are out there. And we hear a lot from readers on almost systematic age discrimination, just like little things, for example, how when you're applying for a job and still might require you to put your graduation year in there, or your graduation year doesn't go far back enough in the drop-down menu, or, you know, there's just a bunch of small ways that, that people feel like they're still being discriminated against based on their age. You know what's so funny about that? Like, I just feel like the older worker is a more stable worker. That's what I never understood about these employers. I, I had a company and older workers were far better employees because they didn't have to work. I mean, honestly, your kid's sick. You got to stay home from school or my husband lost his job. But like you hire someone who is a mature worker and it's like they're in a whole different part of their career and they're going to show up every day. And that's what they're making this case. They're like we have the experience. We're able to adapt like this. Don't like give us these blanket reasons for why you're not hiring hiring us. And I think companies, some companies are trying to do to do better at this. And I think companies have realized this is a, still a big issue out there. A number of people. There's been a bunch of people who've written beautiful pieces on what could be done mm. uh, to, to help solve this. But, but I don't know. It's still an issue that I think a lot of people still are experiencing day in and day out, and one that we certainly feel like um, you know people want to read about. What's the misunderstood part of the labor market right now? I think just the fact that it's so clustered. Like we we talked about kind of some of these hot job markets. I mean, we identified Austin as the hottest city in America based on labor force participation, wage gains, job, you know, unemployment rate, job growth. Um, you know, but I think you look at some of the places like Seattle, San Jose, Austin, uh, others, and then you look at places that like Detroit still is one of the losers. You look See, at Rochester, Amazon, New York. Amazon yeah. should have gone there. Well, that's what that's the argument is that they could have gone in places where you could have distributed these jobs in places that might need them more, for example, than than New York. Um, but but I, but yeah, but so I think that clustering effect is so interesting. Brookings has done a ton of uh, research on this, just showing kind of what happens when you have so many so many skilled workers, so many high wage jobs, and just 
a handful of cities across America. That's, I think, really interesting and, and causes a lot of issues. There's a lot going on here. Will you, will you come back when you write more fabulous stuff? Please, Jill. This is such a blast to talk with you. Thank you for having um, me. Chip Cutter is a journalist. He is a writer at the Wall Street Journal, and he covers everything related to jobs and careers and I don't know. You might dip your toe into other things every now and again. I don't know. Well, you started the program. We talked about your best financial or career decision. And now I want to know, what is your worst? So worst? Uh, I mean, I probably, I mean, I think probably like I fall into a lot of the, like the same traps of like not paying down credit card debt, for example, or things what? like that too. I mean, now, now that's not an issue, but that was, I think earlier on, that was, that was maybe a problem for me. So. You know, I just like in the next time we ever do this interview, we start off and I say, what's your best financial decision? Why don't you say buying this book? <laughs> that is, well, that is. <laughs> Jill, your book's amazing. I, I was, it was so great to kind of, it has your voice in it. Like you, you listen to your show and you're like this, who, who's this brilliant person on the other end and, and kind of sharing all this advice. Anyway, that's, uh, that's Marcus, in the book. And it's, Mark it's is brushing his nose. He's saying you're being a, quite a brown noser. I appreciate <laughs> It fully. Chip Cutter, thank you so much for joining us. The best. Thank you. Thanks to Chip Cutter for appearing today. If you want to check out his work, go to WSJ.com, the Wall Street Journal's website. And remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. See you next week. <laughs> 